Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, what does sex look like for your species? You ever seen two cats fighting? It's like that? With a fire hose? Well, you put your right hand in, you take your right hand out, you put your left hand in, <laughs> and you shake it all about. <laughs> I, I, fi- I lose all of these. I never have the best answer. God, I don't even know why I try. I'm, I'm just going to stick to writing, you know, overlong donkey summaries and let, let Anna do the... The, the funny answer is because I clearly cannot compete. I'm sorry, buddy. For reference, for my species, we just roll dice and uh, postpone whatever we're going to do it for next week because, uh, you know, <laughs> we're not really in a mood for it. Maybe next week. <laughs> uh, when was the last time we met for that one game? I mean, I could ask that question for both of you and I get, I get similar but not quite exact answers. Uh, anyways, um, we're discussing episodes 12 and 13 of season 2 of Babylon 5, Acts of Sacrifice, and Hunter Prey. Hunter Prey is the name of a fanfic that I'm pretty sure I wrote sometime back in 2002, but that is not what we are talking about tonight. Um, hold on. Kind of left us with half the information there. Fanfic of what? God, who would know? I'm pretty sure it was Stargate Atlantis. <laughs> that's just like that feels like the right five there okay yeah right. well that's enough that's that's enough information for me to work with it's like probably like season three because i stopped watching it around that point because they kept switching around like the commander of the station the cast just became a revolving door anyways yeah acts of sacrifice i to take it away before we go too much into my uh writing history uh, okay so Episode 12 of Season 2, Acts of Sacrifice, or perhaps Acts of Snacrifice, written by JMS and directed by Jim Johnston. So we start with a brief ex- exposition scene. Uh, Jakar reveals to the B5 staff that the war is not going well and that the Centauri have begun attacking civilian targets. Sheridan offers to talk to EarthGov to try to convince them to intervene. Delenn is similarly horrified when Jakar shows her the footage, but doesn't offer help as readily. She fears that the Narn may just turn around and attack the Centauri, and that the Centauri would be the ones asking for Mimbar's aid next time. Um, And she fears another situation like the Earth-Mimbari War, where Earth came like literally Jeffrey Sinclair's width away from being obliterated. She'll talk to the council and try to arrange non-military aid, but this does not really satisfy Jakar. Meanwhile, tensions have been rising on the station between the Narn and the Centauri, with several conflicts that escalate to a Narn being shot by a security officer. Sheridan warns Jakar that if tensions continue, it'll make it a lot harder for Sheridan to convince EarthGov to aid the Narn. 
Jakar speaks with the Narn population and explains the situation. They tell him they understand, but as soon as he leaves, they uh, drag out and stab a bound and gag Centauri. They intend the Centauri corpse to be a message, uh, and they will attack in six hours. Later, Jakar and Natoth drop in on the others as they're planning their attack and distributing weapons. Jakar reminds them that his authority can only be, be taken by force, since he is the representative of the Kari, and uh, he and the ringleader fight, with the rabble held off by Natoth. He defeats the ringleader and is only lightly stabbed. Meanwhile, Sheridan and Dolan have worked together on a plan to unofficially get medical aid to Narns, um, since neither of their governments is willing to help officially, and evacuate Narn civilians. B-5 food surpluses will be taken to Narn territory on Mimbari ships, and the emptied ships will return with refugees. Jakar meets with them, having treated his wound, and is both grateful for their help and saddened by how little they can help uh, how little help they can give and the fact that he cannot speak of it to others or it will go away. However, he realizes it's the best they can do with their limited power and resources, uh, thanks them, and then breaks into a very tragic mis mixture of laughing and sobbing. Our B-plot brings the episode's mystery guests. This time we have the representatives of an alien species called the Lumati, who Earth wants to convince to ally uh, with them or to join the League. Ivanova will, of course, be in charge of tours and such for the Lumati delegation uh, as part of learning the fine art of diplomacy. <laughs> the delegation consists of two Lumati, an old guy and a younger one who definitely looks like Zathras's long-lost cousin. Only the younger one speaks and explains to a very confused Ivanova that he serves as translator so that the Lumati representative can avoid speaking to a potentially inferior species directly. Ivanova is less than thrilled, uh, but whisks the two off on their tour. She continues to be frustrated with their tour as they visit MedLab. They're amazed by MedLab not because of the technology, but because the Lumati believe that the sick and weak should die for the sake of evolution. Uh, Franklin disagrees and argues against this, and they tut-tut his strange notions that uh, they're sure that he'll grow out of. The Lumati requests to pick the next location on the tour, out of concern that Ivanova is showing them only the best of the station. They choose down below, and end up commending Ivanova and humanity for filtering out the weak members of their own species, uh, interpreting her insistence that this is unintentional as humility. The elder Lumati takes over from the translator and agrees to ally with Earth. When finalizing the treaty in Sheridan's office, Ivanova learns that Lumati custom is, in fact, to seal the deal in more ways than just one. Um, she has to have sex with the Lumati to finalize the agreement. She manages to dodge the situation in the moment by faking a call, uh, giving herself time to plan and prepare. After a chat with Dr. Franklin, she comes up with a plan. The Lumati don't know what human sex customs are, so Susan goads them into doing it human style and then has a hilarious and fully clothed scene where she dances around the Lumati and fakes an orgasm. This is a scene that I cannot fully do justice, 
And so here you go with some assistance from our dear Zathras. I thought it over and I'm ready now. I set aside as much time as required to have sex as is done by your species. Since if we were to do it human style, probably be too much for you. Are you implying that Lamati's sex is inferior? Oh, no, no, not at all. Yeah, not as such. I mean, it just wouldn't be fair to ask you to do it our way on such short notice. You know, the pressure to perform. Enough. To conclude our deal, we will have sex human style. Mm. You sure? You do know what this entails. Of course. Ignorance is a, an inferior trait. That's what I thought. You ready? Yes. Good. Oh. Oh. Boom shabba lubba lubba, boom shabba lubba lubba. Hey there, hey there, three bags full. You come here often? Yes, I do. Dinner shabba lubba lubba, drink shabba lubba lubba, kiss, 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 kiss. Grab! How do you like it so far? Oh, I... I slept with you the other night. You didn't call, you didn't write. I think you did it just for spite. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Tell me about your portfolio. Oh, yes, yes. Yes, yes! Lie to me about your family. Oh, yes! Oh, yes! Oh, yes! Yes, yes, yes! Yes! Yeah! Oh, God, you're good. What do I do now? Uh, old style, you roll over and go to bed. New style, you go out for pizza and I never see you again. Perhaps I'll call you before I go. After the Lumati leave, Ivanova receives a gift from them uh, with a strange jeweled device and a card saying, next time, my way. <laughs> so I want to ask everybody, I, if we can like pull up the YouTube scene if we need to, what is your favorite part of the dance? Um, I absolutely refuse to pick any piece of this mastercraft of acting and performing as better or worse than any one part. The whole thing is amazing. And this goes back to my favorite factoid about this episode. Um, there's so you get on Lurker's Guide and I this is a great opportunity to talk about this dance. Claudia Christian asked for more fun bits to do before season three got heavy. And this is how JMS answered her request was this episode. Apparently she loved this scene from the first moment she read it on the page, invented this dance and did this dance. Let me, what's the line that he, in, in Lurker's Guide? Claudia loved the scene when I first described it to her prior to finishing the script. She was dying to do it and kept sort of doing it around people for some time prior to filming. So I refuse to pick a, any specific part because I just love the idea of Claudia Christian doing this dance all over the crew the whole yeah. time they were filming this episode. I mean, I would do it, honestly. If I was given that, I like personally, I have a favorite part, which is when she says, 
when she breathlessly says, tell me about your portfolio. (laughs) (laughs) That's the part where I just break up. I I really love the end where um, the very confused Lumati asks what happens next. And she replies, old style, you roll over and go to sleep. New style, you go out for pizza and I never see you again. Um, it's such a good little, like, quip. Yeah, yeah. It's such a good scene. Yeah. It's, it's, it honestly is just like, I, I was, during my rewatch for this, because I, I, I'm following a pattern of, like, for any episodes that are, that we have not caught up on, I will go back and rewatch them for this. I, I stopped the last evening because I, right before that scene because I knew that if I did I was going to just be laughing so hard I wasn't going to be able to sleep. So when I pressed resume this afternoon to finish up this and write the summary for Hunter Prey, I just like was like, oh god, oh god. <laughs> yeah. It's it's hilarious. Yeah. And it's, I, I love it too that it's such a like left turn from the way that we start the scenes with the Lumati, where they're like very serious and tut tut gross inferior species gross yeah. etc and then we get to the them in the like captain's office and it's like and no we will have sex <laughs> and it's just such a complete um wild turn for that entire subplot that like you could not expect at the start yeah yeah especially considering the plot line with jakar is so heavy yeah yeah it's a it's a real oof we haven't seen a ton of jakar the last couple episodes he wasn't in gropos and trying to remember was he in all alone in the night I don't think he shows up. No, no. Though, though, if you if you look on like the like Amazon has its like thing where it's like if you mouse over it, it'll show you actors in a scene. Yeah. It identifies the Narn on the 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 Stribe ship as Jakar. Whoops. Oh no, <laughs> that's racist. Which... <laughs> Just saying. But no, we do not see him at all of the night. So this it's been a while since we've seen our boy. Yeah. Um, the scene where he is like laughing and crying is just awful. It's just awful. There's no other word for it. Uh, Jakar, it's heart wrenching. Yeah. Okay. So there is another word for it. Way to show me up. Thanks. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I wanted to clarify that it's not it's not awful in that like Cassius's no, acting he, is bad. Absolutely no. He absolutely because it destroys could never that be bad. scene. Yeah. Yeah. It's awful in that it's yeah it's. It's so it's almost hard to watch. I mean, he's watching his people die, not just die and and lose this war. He believes he's seen the end of his civilization right before his eyes. Again. Again, yeah. And it's absolutely destroying him. And he's not handling it very well. Like he he's putting on a good face in public, but then he sees these how little help he's getting and how little he can do. And he, he's having a rough time with it. And that scene where he just falls apart is, I mean, Catsalus just crushes that scene. God, Jakar's so good. In, in Lurkers, there's the, I think the description is something like that he's 
you know, laughing at the absurdity of it and sobbing at his helplessness or something along those lines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that definitely is the mood. Mm-hmm. Like he he for sure recognizes that Sheridan and Delenn are trying their best to help, but like Delenn Delenn has just been kicked off the council. She doesn't have much power at this point. Sheridan is not quite a nobody, but nobody adjacent. Yeah, I mean, Sheridan's been officially told that, like, Earth isn't going to get into this. Uh, we will see more about why Earth isn't getting into this as oh, the season yeah. progresses. Yeah. But it's also just that without the actual, you know, without the actual support of Earth, there isn't a lot Sheridan can do. Yeah, he's he's got the resources of the station. He's not... He yeah. ends up... I mean, he ends up using um, Franklin's underground telepath railroad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's acting as the governor of Babylon 5, not as an Earth Force representative. Yeah. So he's got a, a small a small city resources. He's sending them like what everything he can. It's it, the food surpluses that they've got. He's picking pockets basically to, to try and send them over there. And it's, you know, they're doing everything they can, but it's, I mean, you're talking about two empires clashing and one of them falling apart as a consequence. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, there's a real limit to what you can do. Yeah. It's rough. It's, it's a hard, because the the A plot and B plot are both about similar things, which are about non-intervention, which they're <laughs> for two different reasons. And I think you're supposed to think that like they're for similar reasons. But the fact of it is, is that the Narn Centauri War is a diplomatic quagmire that in many ways represents historical expansionism. People aren't going against the Centauri, even though it's pretty clear the Centauri are the aggressors because they don't want to be next for the Centauri. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We will see in season three um, that just because you don't get involved doesn't mean you're not next. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, at this point, at this point, Earth may already be in talks to ally with the Centauri. Yeah. Um, looking at timelines. Yeah, and like we're and like we're getting that already with like the refusal to intervene, even though like even like you know, a couple months ago, Earth was ready to like slap down and send observers in to make sure that the Centauri were committing war crimes. Well I I have questions about how much that was actually Earth and how much that was uh Sheridan blustering yeah. and mm-hmm. bluffing. I think we have three different flavors of non-intervention here. We've got the Earth nefarious non-intervention that they don't want to intervene because they're already intervening on the other direction or about to. Mm-hmm. We have Delenn. I mean, her her argument that you know Jakar has at this point been on the station talking to her for like two years about how one of these days the Narn are going to show the Centauri who's boss, right? Like one of the day, one of these days the wheel will turn and the Narn will be on top. Calling out that rhetoric and saying like, you know, it's, they're the aggressors this time, but what is going to, I have no assurances that you won't do this thing that 
you told me explicitly over and over again that you were going to do. Yeah. Um, like it's it would be all well and good for Jakar to say like, no, yeah, we we're totally going to be like, we'll leave it at that, you know, and not go after them in return. But he, he's got two years of saying the opposite behind him. And then we have the Lumati who have like, Justin, you, you have a great description of that in the in our little write up here. So if you look at the Lumati, you're pretty clearly like you get what it's supposed to pastiche pretty easily is that they are supposed to be uh, a critique of the prime directive from Star Trek. It's like if you took the prime directive and then like added added like eugenics to it. Yeah, it's a eugenics version of the prime directive. It's basically written as like a ha gotcha as a bad faith argument of somebody who's only heard the prime directive in passing. Like that's how this episode reads. Who's the, who wrote this episode? JMS. JMS. <laughs> I didn't ask that question for a pointed reason or anything. Just, you know, randomly decided to ask it right at that moment. Yeah. Um, I, it, it's, it's very much like, Oh, Hey, th- like this is a good point to like show. Oh, Hey, we'll let, we'll let them all sort it out. And how neglect, uh, leads to states like poverty, homelessness, and capital and late stage capitalism. Those are caused by neglect in their own ways. And, um, or what social Darwinists would consider just sorting out the wheat from the chaff. But that is also like ignoring where Star Trek comes from with their prime directive is that it is sort of a response to colonialism. Yeah. And the idea that like, we is like, it's not like where with the eugenics, like the Lumati, where we won't help, we won't help or harm someone because Darwinism will sort it out. It's, we're not going to fuck with people just because we have the ability to. Yeah, the I think that the best point where it actually becomes a bit of a more decent critique of the Prime Directive is, I think, just one line or a pair of lines when the Lumati are talking with Franklin. Um, that Franklin has that line of like, you know, if you if you saw some if you saw a child bleeding to death and you could, you know, save them by raising one finger you wouldn't do it which is a scenario that we've seen broadly in a number of star trek episodes involving the prime directive i think that's the only piece where it becomes a fair critique like in every time that it's shown it's like people can request aid from the federation that's like you know like a good chunk of plots yeah even non-Federation members will like say, "Hey, can we get can we get a help here?" And they're like, "Yeah, sure." Starfleet is, you know, humanitarian organization as well as a paramilitary. Ah, but they but they know that the Federation exists. Yeah, which is a whole other thing. Welcome, welcome to our side project. Uh, Anna and Justin discuss the Prime Directive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, at that point, we need to go with the like. This is the whole thing, also that like Star Trek is not a single storyline composed into one thing it is a it is a periodic piece of television that that is more interested in telling 45 minutes of a story than being a generally cohesive narrative from a to b yes Uh, yeah which those are different things we'll we'll we'll, like 
I've had some discussions with some folks about what I have and have liked about Babylon 5 because our my next episode in the rewatch is officially going to be the halfway point. Uh, but we'll get to that. We'll we'll get to that maybe in like the season end where I can talk about some more stuff here. We also we also have like some interspersed scenes that you mentioned in the document that are a lot of being very sad. Yeah. So so there's a sort of C plot um, that I didn't really put into my summary just for brevity. But there's there's this running set of scenes that have Londo being kind of disillusioned about his rise to power. Um, so you've got people trying to buy his favor um, with things like Jaquan Eth plants. Um, we've Good got Garibaldi distancing himself from Londo. It ends up kind of culminating in him being lenient in his demands for justice for that murdered Centauri. Um, and we kind of see a sliver of the Londo who we knew before he met Morden. Mm-hmm. Um it's an it's a nice little and kind of as a as a you know Londo can have a little socialization as a treat. Um Garibaldi then has a chemically inoffensive drink with him. Um after Londo has one scene of being a decent person. But yeah it's it's a good little set of scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh and actually so there's a there's a side note here. Um, so I've commented on costuming a few times over the course of these recordings. And this actually has a interesting costuming thing, which is that it's this episode where Londo's costume changes slightly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He gets a he gets a new costume that's kind of a little bit darker, crisper, um, more militaristic looking. A little bit like richer looking, and it it is a nice visual cue to mm. his new status. Yeah, it's a good catch. Yeah, it's the, we we get that new look, and it definitely. I mean, it's got to track with where we're going for the rest of the season. Yep. Yep. So I have a question. Yeah. Why the fuck did Earth think that they were gonna that the Lumati are even worthwhile as allies? Because it seems like if if Earth was in a bind, Lumati would say, "Well, they must have some yeah, technology Lumati that Earth wants, or are granting Earth passage through some hyperspace sector or something." That yeah. always seems to be what what Earth wants. It seems like a very like weird little bit. I'm I'm gonna go with they want to glom onto Lumati tech. Yeah. But yeah, like, we never hear from them again. So we have to assume that like the Earth Civil War happens and the Lumati just like fuck off yeah. being like lol, you guys actually suck. An interesting note about the Narns from this episode that I don't know if I knew I don't know if it's established elsewhere. I didn't know it until I was looking through the Lurker's Guide notes for this episode. This is from JMS, who says that given that the Narns were agrarian prior to the arrival of the Centauri and were under their heel and got most of their tech from Centauri leftovers, they're not more advanced. It's a lot like the Russian situation. Seemingly this tremendous power, but once you look deep, not as well off as you'd think. Mm-hmm. Which aside from a slightly dated uh, reference to Russia, is interesting that the Narns were agrarian prior to the arrival of the Centauri. I think that's interesting. That yeah. I don't know if that had been established elsewhere, but that's interesting to me that they, speaking about like that whole prime directive thing, that the Centauri basically like 
rolled in and colonized them. And they picked up the leftovers and made their own spacefaring empire and then proceeded to just get whooped back down. Uh, that's a real tragic story for a civilization, you know? Uh, that's all I got on this episode. I'm done. I have one episode. note. Uh, Ian Ambercrabbie, who plays the senior Lumati, uh, is a has had a number of guest things, but uh, for for the nerd herd here, he is the voice of Chancellor Palpatine in the Clone Wars cartoon. That's awesome. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, for all but the last season. Um, he passed during, I think, like season five of recording. So the last season, like the last season of Clone Wars, it's Tim Curry instead. That's amazing. I have I have one one more thing that I'd like to point out on this is that um, Word of God from JMS does in fact say that if Sheridan had been the one giving the Lumati the tour, uh, he would have been the one who they would have expected to seal the deal with them. I really wish we had gotten Boxlitner doing that dance too. I know. God, yeah. He would have he would have acted the hell out of that. Mm-hmm. All right. We've got one last episode here. It is Hunter Prey, uh, episode 13 of season two, rated by J. Michael Straczynski and directed by uh, Medichem Benetsky. A director who we haven't seen yet. So we start off with Ivanova and Sheridan looking at Cautious Ship, which gives us a great view of some early pixelated CGI where they are marveling at the bio ship. Uh, Sheridan gets too close, which activates a security measure on the ship, and they back off quickly. Uh, Sheridan vows to figure out more about Kosh and the Vorlons. Garibaldi approaches them with a request to speak in private. Earth has posted an ultraviolet alert for a fugitive, Dr. Everett Jacobs, who is on the president's personal staff. Earth has authorized a kill order for Jacobs if he resists and sent someone to coordinate. Agent Cranston arrives and reveals that Jacobs stole classified material, black ops, and projects. Uh, Cranston suggests he's here on B5 to sell his secrets. Garibaldi and Sheridan think this might be Croc, but decide to go along with it at the moment. Um, we go over to Med Lab, where we get to see Franklin playing with beakers again. Garibaldi enlists Franklin, who had studied under Jacobs at Harvard, to help find him. We cut to Jacobs who is in the Zocalo trying to buy a fake ID and being very bad about it, scaring off a merchant who uh, thinks he's a cop or knows he's fucked. A man who looks like the Undertaker's bum cousins follows Jacobs around the scene <laughs> and looks menacingly. Sheridan approaches Kosh and tries to make some conversation and suggests spending more time together. Sheridan reveals he knows Kosh was in his dream on the alien ship back in All Alone in the Night. Kosh reveals that his thoughts became the song, and that allowed him to reach out to Sheridan. Cranston gives marching orders to the security forces and reveals Jacob has an ID crystal implanted on him, and they will be able to use some handheld scanners to try and search the station. Garibaldi updates Sheridan, who becomes distracted by a red ribbon tied to a post. He heads down a corridor and gives a little signal with a flashlight. An agent of General Haig arrives to inform Sheridan he's in danger. She informs him Jacob is not a traitor, but in fact, Jacob knows that Clark failed his illness to get off Earth Force One before it exploded and killed former President Santiago. Jacobs needs to get off station after dictating a statement, but Sheridan will need to improvise to do so without tipping off Cramston. Garibaldi sends a coded message. 
No, you know what? Garibaldi sends the encoded equivalent of a subliminal you up text to Franklin to meet him in his quarters. I swear to God, we will post this in the show notes, this frame. It is. It's, I it's, regret having seen it. If, if you've ever gotten a really bad message on Tinder, I haven't because I'm an old. But I, I, I'm on Reddit. I see how these things work. That is what he sends to Franklin. So you have to wonder what Franklin was expecting when he showed up in that amazing Lycra coat that he shows up in. Yeah. I'm just saying, oh, yeah. I'm just wondering what what activities was Franklin expecting when he rolls up in this, what is it, like teal and purple Lycra windbreaker? Is, yeah. is that what well, one goes to a swingers party in now? In, yeah, in the like, uh, like Garibaldi's actual messages, meet me in my quarters, wear something comfortable. Um... <laughs> Which is, um, and it's like, it's done with like little word bubbles around him on a freeze frame. Um, I cannot say how uncomfortable this makes me. <laughs> like, just like, I would like, blah, like, this is like, if, if I was not involved in a conspiracy involving the possible authoritarian overthrow of EarthGov, I would report Garibaldi to HR. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, Franklin shows up. As I said, yeah. in this hideous, hideous thing. And he's just like, you got to wonder. So here's my real question. What does he discreetly dump into Garibaldi's trash chute once he realizes that he's not there for a sex party? Probably a, a bottle of wine. Like, it's really probably well, like cheap wine. No, it's a bottle well, of Everclear. He- no, but he knows that he knows that Garibaldi's an alcoholic, though. He wouldn't show up. Oh, good point, good point, the... good point, good um, point. I'm going to go like... with synthetic roses. <laughs> synthetic roses is a good answer. That's good. Edibles? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, like a, like a, like a the... two liter of lube? It's <laughs> <laughs> a 40 gallon barrel. Yeah. Well, he's a, he works in med lab. He can get that stuff in bulk. It's just an old Mountain Dew bottle full. It's amazing what you can get onto the station for medical purposes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, we get to see Jacob again, disoriented and taking... We've gone some places tonight away. in this recording. Uh, Franklin and Garibaldi go undercover in the worst fucking disguises ever. Garibaldi's hat alone <laughs> is a war crime. Isn't isn't the hat that the the one that he got from that alien in the episode that we didn't cover? Oh, possibly, I, I refuse to even. I think like. it's the same hat. And they go down to Brown Sector to snoop around. Uh, Jacobs runs into uh, the low rent Undertaker, who is not in fact working for Earth uh, that I was suspecting, but is in fact just some criminal who takes him hostage. Uh, the Undertaker finds a data crystal hidden in Jacob's clothes, as well as an engraved watch from the president, and realizes who he is. Someone important. He goes off to find what the crystal might have. Sheridan feeds Cranston a bullshit story about a shitty place called Downtown that is hermetically sealed behind 47 bulkheads about a possible place where Jacobs might have hid, so that he can give him time for Garibaldi and Franklin to search. Kosh, meanwhile, does a first. He requests to speak to Sheridan. Sheridan rushes off to meet him. Garibaldi and Franklin search down below and are ridiculously in character eating Nutrigrain bars and trying to look cool and wax nostalgic about how cool they were back in college. 
I swear to God, this is the actual scene. I I can't believe it's. I just like I like blacked out while I was rewatching this. That I was, was like the two I, of them. I t- surrounded <laughs> by the dross of humanity in down below, wearing their workout parkas and fucking <laughs> suede blazers and his shitty detective's hat, cosplaying like the normals, eating fucking Nutri-Grain bars. This scene blows my mind every time I see it. There is, I just don't, I'm trying to imagine the director of this episode sitting in the editing bay, looking at this and going, fuck yeah, nailed it. I'm just <laughs> like- podcast a mistake? It was like, were they, were they doing like rails of Coke while they were editing this? And that's what made this know. scene seem like a well-executed decision? I don't... I don't know. Like, B5 gets a lot of mileage out of not a lot. A lot in this... In its runtime. But this scene... Mm-mm. No. Like, like these, like, three bookended scenes of Garibaldi and Franklin are just like... You know, can I, can I deposit a fan theory here? Please. About... Absolutely. Uh, Medicham Benetsky. I think... He, I think... Um, Medicham Benetsky uh, does not have a photo on IMDb. So, hold on. I'm going to get a gender for this person. Uh, Medicham Benetsky. I legitimately cannot find... Like, okay, I cannot find a gender for this person. So, Medicham Benetsky... I'm going to say is just like this is the only way this makes sense. This is just Benetsky's like Garibaldi Franklin fanfic. <laughs> like this yeah. is the only thing I have for this. This is it's bizarre. Anyways, Franklin overhears just like locks his way into finding a merchant who is selling Jacob's uh, engraved watch from the president. Uh, Garibaldi uses some excessive force to find things out, and then we get uh, cut back to the Undertaker, who is wearing these ridiculous sunglasses <laughs> as he contacts Agent Cranston and offers up Jacobs for credits. Again, just this is mind-boggling. We'll talk about more about this when I'm done. But so then Sheridan visits Kosh, and they go back and forth. Sheridan gets frustrated with the looping dialogue of Kosh and finally just asks him and shouts, what do you want? Kosh, and possibly the most direct he has been in the entire series to this point, tells Sheridan to never ask that question. Kosh then agrees to teach Sheridan, not about Kosh, but about himself, until he is ready to fight legends. We then go back to Garibaldi and Franklin, who find Jacobs and rescue him. Garibaldi gets stabbed in the arm, but Jacob tells him that the Undertaker has the crystal, and Garibaldi goes to get the crystal. In fact, he hides just in the back room, sticks up, sticks him up, and goes like all bad cop, shooting around him until he gives up the crystal. Uh, back in Franklin's quarters, the staff interviews Jacobs. And realized that President Clark did, in fact, fake his illness so that he could be off Earth Force One before it exploded. They only have a few hours to get Jacobs off station because Cranston has figured out they can reconfigure the scanners to find the crystal. 
that is in Jacobs. All of the docking bays also are being watched, except... The internal scanners come online, but they are not able to find any signature for the crystal. Cautious ship, meanwhile, is departing, and Cranston insists the ship is scanned. It only shows one life sign, non-human. Sheridan tells him that as Cranston's wild goose chase has turned up nothing, he can get the hell off the station. They return to Bay 13 and Cautious Ship and watch it. Sheridan explains that the life signs only showed one life form because the ship is organic. The ship then uh, poops out Dr. Jacobs, who is in an artificial coma. Franklin revives him, and Jacobs remarks that while he was asleep, the ship sang to him. Sheridan delivers the data crystal to Higgs agent, who reveals it's not enough to indict Clark, but it's a start. This is a fucking roller coaster of an it's episode. It's a weird episode. Yeah. The CGI when the ship, like, I don't know what the appropriate adjective is, like, pseudopods out Dr. Jacobs is the shittiest, wildest, weirdest <laughs> animation. It's like, and they include this weird little, like, effect as it, like, squirts him out yeah. onto the deck. It's bananas. I love that scene. Yeah, no. The, the so like the, the there's the there's like this opening scene where like Ivanova and Sheridan are just standing in front of a green screen, yeah, and like you can like the the just like how clearly this thing has been sized up, you can just like there was not enough computing power to properly handle the scene, and you could just like ooh that's some dark forces level textures, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Props to them. They act the hell out of that scene. Like, my eyes physically widened when I saw that, because I was just like, what is this? Yeah. It's a... It's a thing. Yeah. There's a lot of things that can be described in this episode. Like, I, I, I also, I want to I wanna note the criminal who, like, abducts Jacobs and everything is named Max, but they only reveal this in, like, the last scene he is in. And so I just kept thinking of him as I was watching this as The Undertaker because he sort of looks like The Undertaker. This is all if I have. If you had told me, just, I Googled after you. I saw this on the, uh, after I saw your notes about that in the outline, I Googled who The Undertaker was because I'm not a wrestling person. And if you had told me that he, it actually was The Undertaker, I would have believed you. I wouldn't have bothered to like <laughs> fact check you on that. And I would have just believed you because it does look very... Very much like that. This is a wild episode. <laughs> I'm going to just, like, skip over the Jacob stuff. <laughs> Let's go. Well, I, I have one question with the Jacob stuff, which is why could they not just remove that damn tracking crystal? Good point. Okay. I, okay, actually. I have a better question. Crystal. Let's talk about the crystal. I have okay. a better question. Why didn't they just email? I don't know. Maybe, maybe, like, maybe, like, EarthGov's email has, like, some pretty, like, pretty strict whitelisting policies. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah, the guy's a doctor. Why couldn't he have... I mean, is it, like, embedded in his brain tissue? Who knows? Like, also, like... Okay, so it's... it's t- we're told that the, that the crystal is there to prevent kidnappings, and it has a range of five miles, which seems intimately useless. Yeah, that's... And it, like, only works if you've got, like, a scanner pointing right in its direction. I mean, like, that... That seems fairly useless, but it also seems actually fairly plausible for the tech. Yeah. Point. Yeah, we get the wildly variant scanning technology again. Yeah, because it's not like, you know, this is space. GPS doesn't work. We don't have space GPS. But the, the 
I mean, you'd think that you'd think that Franklin would have been able to like remove that thing and flush it down a toilet. Yeah. Right. Or stick it on a rat or something like they do every time. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I I have a particular frustration with needless red herring technologies in an era where everybody knows enough about technology to easily poke a hole in it. Like it was one thing in like the 70s when nobody knew how fucking technology did anything and everybody was like, a computer? What? And so you could just say, oh, it's a computer. And they'd just be like, okay, you sure. crazy person. I believe you. But now like you 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 put like a tracking chip on somebody and like your four-year-old is like, well, that's not how that works. I mean, and I'm not speaking <laughs> hyperbolically, like my kid critiques fucking stuff in TV shows now. He's like, well, why are they doing that? Like, why doesn't, why don't they like jump to the next dimension? And I'm just like, I don't know, man, that's a really valid question. Why don't they just <laughs> jump to the next dimension? Who am I like, you should get a gig, a writing gig for this, TV, this cartoon. You are asking more valid questions than the writers did. Um, and it's a thing. I can't wait till we get to podcast of interest that we have to like go through the technology of blue jacket. Well, Okay. <laughs> excellent example. No, excellent example. So that is an example of something that in theory shouldn't work. Cuz like yes. in our world it doesn't work, but it is used in a consi- in a single consistent manner. Yes. All throughout the show, so you don't think about it. You just yeah. take for granted that they have a technology that lets them just remotely access any phone. They call it Blue Jack. Yeah. He, he explains it once and then it's never there. He never yeah, bothers with like, it again. And like, this is the first time that we see anything that has a like tracking crystal. And so we're all drawn to it as like the. Yeah. Yeah. Because listen, if nothing else, our show has become obsessed with the crystals yeah. in the show, which we rightly should. Yeah. Be. It's all these little like, it's these MacGuffins and red herring where they introduce some weird technology thing or fucking Franklin is waving a wand around like a let's not use that particular analogy that's probably (laughs) one too many sex party references um (laughs) let's just say he's waving it all over the place in people's faces and you know like it's unnecessary and it it, in retro like upon later viewings it makes the plot look really it, it cheapens the plot the, the other thing that tends to bother me in this show is they're super inconsistent with scanning from episode to episode. And so that's another thing that, like, I tend to be fixated on in terms of what the scanning tech can do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, For- there are good things about this, though. Yeah. The stuff with Kosh is cool. Yeah. Sheridan is like, I want to know more. Because Kosh has contacted me somehow, we're somehow linked here. And yeah, I mean, their dialogue in Kosh's quarters where Sheridan is just like, why am I here? Why? And then he finally breaks and he he says the thing that he doesn't know is important. But um, he asks, what do you want? Which is that John Travolta motherfuckers uh, question. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently, hmm, Kosh doesn't seem to like that. I wonder what that could mean. Yeah. I wonder yeah. why. Yeah. One of my favorite little bits is in that conversation with Kosh, one of his lines is seems like it could be a callback to Sheridan's speech where he you know, back from the 
you know, season two, episode one, where he quotes his conversation with the Dalai Lama um, and the statement, it'll be better when you begin to understand what you do not understand. Mm-hmm. And Kosh like almost quotes that back, which is wild. Like maybe maybe having, you know, Kosh inside your brain is uh, something there. The, the other thing that I really like here is where Kosh says that thing about how Sheridan's thoughts became the song, mm-hmm. which is potentially a callback to Deathwalker, where in response to Talia being like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Kosh has that quote of listen to the music, not the song. So, you know, there's stuff that like isn't necessarily ever explicitly picked back up but there's some there's some fun kind of mirroring going on that indicates mm-hmm. that perhaps the vorlon is meddling in a variety of things that's random why would you suggest that well, vorlon's meddling <laughs> that's crazy talk the vorlon definitely didn't tell me to say that <laughs> you do not understand but you will yeah, and I think it's, it's yeah, this is one of those things where it's like, this is going to start the 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 little arc here of Sheridan's enlightenment. Yeah. Which we're going to see over the next few episodes. Which is a fun fun little arc, for sure. Yeah, the, where Sheridan is being prepared to lead this, uh, this conspiracy of light, we're calling it. <laughs> oh, I do want to also note that... Uh, in the scuffle where Garibaldi and Franklin are saving Jacobs, Franklin pulls out the the classic sci-fi fighting move of the hammer hands, like the Captain Kirk double-handed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just like that was that was a chef kiss uh, choreography right there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I would like to say on the record that. Babylon 5 must exist in a truly dark future because on the one hand, we do know that Zima still exists, but the future is cursed by Nutrigrain bars. Not a fan. Which are perhaps the vilest food on this planet. I'm not hugely opposed to them. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll have, like, I've got a box of like like the apple cinnamon Nutrigrain bars in the kitchen that I'm just like... If I don't feel like eating real food, those are like it's a good standby. I mean, this is me going with I, I hate anything that resembles a fig Newton and Nutrigrain Nutrigrain bars really? fall a, under that umbrella. Not a fig Newton fan either. You don't like no. you don't like the occasional crunch of a wasp bit in your cookies. <laughs> <laughs> so I talked about this off air, and we're gonna get this in here, but. I have a theory that this episode was not was written with a different actor in mind for our Dr. Jacobs. Yeah. Interesting. We get a doctor who is assigned to the president's staff, and this is a very Vorlon heavy episode. And the first time I watched this, not knowing the ga- not having watched the gathering, but having context of a line in episode three where they mention that the first doctor on Babylon 5, the one who saw inside Kosh's encounter suit, was reassigned to the president. I assumed those were the same people. And this was all looping back in. 
as it turns out, I had to go look this up, but this is not, in fact, the same doctor who was the original medical officer on Babylon 5 who was in The Gathering. This is an entirely different person on the president's staff. Yeah. It feels like they wrote that with that actor in mind and just uh, couldn't get him, so they rewrote the, the character. Yeah, that certainly was always my take on it. Because it just it feels very weird. <laughs> yeah. And it certainly would have would have played a lot better, I think, if if they'd either rewritten it more substantially or actually gotten that actor. Yeah. Or at least like somebody who looked similar. Yeah, I mean like we're we know that like B five is not adverse to recasting folks. I do like how with the like they, they have like jamming devices now, but the the agent of General Higgs just leaves hers in the cargo bay. Like she 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 sets it on the wall, turns oh. it on, and then they leave the seat and they leave it there. That's apparently a flashlight. There's like something that's left on the wall for like the or like they set up a like a little jamming device. Yeah. There there was something that was left there like the original edit like had that or like the, the original filming like had that being picked up, but then they shortened the scene. Yeah, in the original huh. scene, they have a little like flashlight code sequence, so they're both holding flashlights. Yeah, yeah which which we see in that episode. You know, like we see part of that in the episode. Yeah, uh, and then so in the original sequence, they do that, and then she steps out of the shadows and puts her flashlight on the ledge beside her. It took so long, so they edited it out. And the result is that there's a flashlight sitting next to her there. Uh, no, I thought there was like a jamming thing as well. Uh, That's yeah, according to maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to rewatch. Oh yeah, we do get a funny thing in MedLab while uh, Franklin is playing with his beakers. That <laughs> Franklin says like, "Oh yeah, no, Doctor Jacobs, he's great. I would. He was a teacher of mine at Harvard. I'll vouch for. I'd vouch for him." And Garibaldi's just like, "Dude, the last time you vouched for someone, they brought out an alien racist bioweapon that killed three people." That was very good. <laughs> Which yeah, is just, it's just like it's like it, it's a callback to an episode that I think most people would rather forget. Yeah, <laughs> but it's just a, it's just like chef kiss. Yeah, it's very good. Another little small bit in this episode is that it's it's continuing the thread of stims being bad for you. That I think at, at at least one point we have Jacobs taking stims, which seems to kind of you know make him more on edge, mm-hmm. etc. Um, and that's that's laying some groundwork for yep. later. Yep. Do we have anything else that we want to discuss uh, on this one? Nope. Um, maybe just a content warning for next week's episode. It's one of those, uh, the news covers your principal characters like a newscast episodes, which I hate. So if you similarly hate those episodes, heads up. Good news is that we're going to be, is that we're not going to be, you know what? No, I will do a newscaster voice, but I'll do like a mid-Atlantic accent. Okay. That makes okay. it worth it. Justin's mid-Atlantic accent is very good. So so I will we'll do that fun. Um we do have two notable faces in this episode. Bernie Casey, who plays Agent Cranston, done a couple things. He was in a Bond movie, uh he was in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Uh Star Trek fans will recognize him from the uh he plays Commander Calvin Hudson uh in the yep. two-parter that introduces the maquis which is a very good episode uh, a very good two-parter there is also richard mall who plays max 
um, aka the this, yeah, this big <laughs> dude, uh, the Undertaker. Who, God, where do you get where do you get sunglasses like that on Babylon Five? <laughs> like the dude just calls Agent Cranston, and he just like wear these big ass sunglasses like he's there to cut a promo. <laughs> Uh, he's done a bunch of stuff. He is, look like, like, he's just a general character actor who has a ridiculously long, uh, list of credits. The one that I will give you, however, is he was in Batman the Animated Series, and he was Harvey Dent. Interesting. He also voiced the Bat Computer, which, oh, <laughs> that's, that's two, that's a, that's a pair there. Two-Face, the Bat Computer, and Thomas Wayne. Interesting. Interesting. Like, he has one of those things of, like, he looks sort of familiar, but it turns out that I didn't actually recognize his face from anything. It's just, and so that just got me all the way down there. He was also a jiggle all the way, so good for him. <laughs> Dubious. And so join us next time for we are going to, uh, Babylon 5 is going to be getting a gift shop uh, in There All the Honor Lies, and then we are going to get possibly... One of the best in-universe commercials ever in and now for a word. So until next time, be seeing you. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share-alike no derivatives license.